everybody. You lost an hour of sleep. Everybody awake? Doesn't hurt to have uh, Pastor Drew worshiping next to you, kind of get you going. I want to invite you to take your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews 10. morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10. There is enough uh, in this passage to keep our minds working for quite some time. It's a lot to take on in more than one message, but we're going to give it a go. Hebrews chapter 10, in honor of God's word, I want to invite you to stand with me as we look at the passage together, read it together, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin, consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. <laughs> Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. When he said the above, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that it will be made, that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible word. And I, and I pray, Father, that uh, well, I need your help. I need your help to be able to communicate truths that are too wonderful uh, to, to really just put in words. Um, they fall so short. Uh, I, I pray, Father, that you would apply these things, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us, Father, to see these truths as they were meant to be understood and received with such awe and wonder and worship and joy. 
So may we receive that. May God, you help me to share that, to tell that, to preach that. So come, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in the midst of your people. For the glory of God. In Christ's name.
prodigal sons and daughters and wayward brothers and sisters and parents who have yet to come to faith. And yet you keep on praying. And you keep wiping away tears. And you keep hoping. You are a redeemed people. You're still living in a fallen world, though. And yet you press on. You press on every week. Here we are. With, with resolute hope, you lean forward into the storm, and you press on. And though chewed up and spit out by the world, yet you're among those of whom the world is not worthy. That's what I see every week when I look out. And then after I look out, well, then I look down. I look down on this amazing book, the Word of God, and I look down at an open Bible, and I am given, given the task, the assignment of bringing to you a, a Word from God that will help you to get up out of bed each day and press on for another week. I am charged with the task of putting before you a prize so glorious that you are inspired to get up and to run in such a way in order to gain that prize. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a, a, a hurting people, a battle-worn people just like us, people who are beaten up, have been beaten up by the world, and yet they are among those of whom the world is not worthy. These are people being written to who have been thrown into prison, who have had their property confiscated, and have done so with joy. And yet some of them are on the verge of throwing in the towel, of going back to Judaism, the old covenant. They understood the song that we just sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. They feel that. They feel that in the core of their being. And so every sentence in the book of Hebrews is written to inspire a people to press on. And so how does the writer go about that? How does he accomplish his task? Another pep talk, perhaps, maybe a guilt trip. Now what he does over and over and over that we have seen is he just keeps lifting up Jesus. Amen. He lifts up before us a prize so glorious that if we are to truly behold him, we will stop at nothing until we have him and he has us. We will press on. Secure once and for all, for all eternity. He is worth it. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus who spoke this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
And this is Jesus' invitation to all who are, are worn out and are burdened by life. And he says, come to me. Come to me. I love that, right? He doesn't offer us a formula. He offers us himself. He offers up his own heart. In fact, this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus actually reveals what his heart is like. He says, I am, I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus towards you when you are struggling with life, when you're struggling with sin. That is the heart of Jesus towards you. And when you come to him, he won't tell you you need to just suck it up. You need to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need to get after it. No, he will invite you to come to him and rest. What an invitation. And one of the great things about Scripture is that we see the heart of Christ revealed in so many different ways. But here in the book of Hebrews, especially here in chapter 10, we see the heart of Christ in a way that is just utterly beautiful. Utterly compelling. Uh, as we begin to just kind of unfold this passage, I, I want you to, to do so looking towards the heart of Jesus this morning. And we're going to see several things about the heart of Jesus in the passage. And some of these things are, are uh, they're beautiful, and, and yet they require our, our minds to kind of work through them. Because you will see, but man, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. I want to just show you the prize so that you will be encouraged today. So how do we see the heart for Jesus? And the second thing I want to address is how the heart of Jesus changes our hearts. There's three things that I want you to see about Christ. The first one is this. I want you to see the submissive will of Christ. The first four verses of chapter 10 are a summary of where we have been the last couple of chapters. We've seen the, the law, we've seen the old covenant, we've seen the sacrificial system, everything associated with Old Testament worship. And here we're told that all of those things were shadows. Simply shadows of Christ. And because they were shadows and not the real thing, they were symbols. They were reminders of something or someone better that was coming. And that, of course, was, was Jesus. So trying to justify ourselves to the old covenant is sort of like trying to chase after shadows. I'm reminded, every time I think of shadows, I'm reminded of, of Plato's famous cave analogy. Uh, he said uh, that reality is much like men who are, are held slaves chained into a cave and all they can see is the cave wall that's in front of them. But behind them there are basically actors or people who are putting on kind of a performance or whether they walk by or whether they show up some kind of symbol with the sun shining behind them. They create shadows on the wall. But for those who have spent their entire lives chained 
and looking and seeing nothing but the wall, their reality is nothing but the shadows. So if they see a person, you know, in their minds, that is what a person is. That is the reality. And yet, all they're seeing is, of course, a shadow. Shadow is the reality. Well, that's kind of the way the Old Covenant functioned. It was a shadow of Jesus. And for a lot of Jews, that's basically the shadows were everything. You know, it was like that's all that they knew. That's all that they understood. That was their reality. Now, before Jesus, these sacrifices had to be done every single year, over and over and over. And they're an annual reminder, the passage says, of sins. So every year, right, you had to be reminded once again that you were a sinner, right, that you desperately needed God to atone for your sin. And the people needed a substitute whose blood was shed instead of their own. Because they had failed, obviously, to obey God's law. Well, nothing's changed, by the way. I mean, we look at that old system and we go, hey, well, we don't have to deal with that anymore. But really, when it comes to the human condition, nothing has changed at all. We may think we're enlightened and we're all advanced with our technology, uh, beyond all of this, this blood and gore, our need for a blood atonement. But we have not changed, right? The, the fact is we are still sinners. The fact is, is that the human condition is still fallen. I mean, look at around. Look around. All this technology, all this scientific advancement, has it made us better? Has it made our society better? I mean, it might have drastically changed our lives, and yes, uh, life may be a lot more comfortable, we may be able to live longer. But the reality is that it has done zero to change our hearts. And so we're still in need of a substitute, just as much as ever. We're just more technically advanced sinners. So, what does that mean concerning these ideas of sacrifice? Well, should we just revert back to sacrificing animals? Well, of course not, because that never worked in the first place. Verse 4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so, beginning in verse 5... We see the heart of Christ revealed. Let's look at it again. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Uh, this is a quote, a direct quote from Psalm 40, which we read at the beginning of the service. The writer of Hebrews has put the words that we read in Psalm 40 into the mouth of Jesus, as though he is the one who spoke them, which he did. Now here we find the whole purpose of why Jesus came, of why Jesus took on flesh. The passage says God took no pleasure in the sacrifices of bulls and goats. Right? Our God is not like some kind of pagan deity who is appeased by animal sacrifices. How could the death of a bull or a goat take away sin? Well, it's clear. It can. So, God is holy beyond comprehension. 
would the sacrifice of a dumb animal restore an offense against his holiness? Well, it wouldn't. And they can't. It would take much more than that. Well, then maybe a human sacrifice would work. A human sacrifice. But the problem with that is there was no human sacrifice which could be sufficient because of all of humanity, there is no one who cannot be said they have fallen short of the glory of God. No man or woman was spotless, could represent a spotless lamb, a sinless lamb. So, a human sacrifice wouldn't work, animal sacrifices wouldn't work. Now, it would require something radical. It would require the sacrifice of God Himself to equal the offense set against His holiness. God would have to provide His own sacrifice, and it would have to be Himself. But how in the world can He do that? Because God is Spirit. God is eternal. He, he literally cannot die. He could never be killed. But what if God became a human being? What if God had a physical body? And so that's what we hear in the passage. Jesus saying in Psalm 40, a body you have prepared for me. Why? Why? So that he could die in our place. So that God could die. That was the will of God. He said that is why I came. I came to do your will, O oh God. Now here, we are on holy ground. I'm tempted to take off my shoes, but I'm going to save you that. Right? I'm tempted to take off my shoes because now we are entering into uh, what we see as the submissive will of Christ. So what is the will of God in which Christ submitted to? When he says, I have come to do your will, what was the will that he came to do? What was the will of the prophet, or excuse me, of the father? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer and to make his life an offering for sin. So when he says, I come to do your will, that's the will that he came to do. To be crushed, to suffer, to be an offering for sin. This is the will of the Father that Jesus came to do. John 6, 38, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, that's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? The submissive will of Christ does not mean, I want you to understand some things, it does not mean that Christ is a notch below the Father. He is submissive to the Father, but He is not below the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally God. There's not a pecking order in the Trinity. Right? But Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to the will of the Father. 
taking on flesh and blood. Nor does this mean, by the way, that Jesus' will was different from the Father. Because that's kind of what it sounds like. I'm not coming to do my will, but to do your will, because my will is different than your will. No. It's not different. It's not different. The whole concept is that my will is going to be subservient to yours. That's the picture. You will recall when Jesus was praying in, in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he would be arrested and crucified. And he is in turmoil in the hour in such turmoil that it causes him to, to literally sweat drops of blood because he considered what was going to about to happen to him as he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And he prayed this in Luke 22, 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So that's the cup of God's wrath that he's about to drink. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So once again, he's submitting himself to do the Father's will. And so we are stumbling into the mystery of Christ's nature. So while the deity of Christ never wavered from the will of God, the humanity of Christ didn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath. He did not want to be crushed. He did not want to be put under the weight of humanity's sin. And yet he surrendered to the will of the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. The Apostle Paul said it something like this in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasp, but emptied himself. He, em he poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are you kidding me? It's amazing. Do you see the downward descent of the Son of God in that passage? He's equal to God, yet he steps down to become flesh and blood human, and then he steps down even further by becoming a servant, and then he goes down to the lowest level possible by dying on a Roman cross. The descent of Christ. Samuel, back in the Old Testament, said to obey is better than sacrifice. Well, Jesus obeyed by sacrifice. God did not take pleasure, it says, in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, but he did take pleasure in the sacrificial offering of his son for our behalf. His son uh, competed or his, completed the will of the Father by making his life a sacrifice for sins, thus securing our salvation. He went low so that we can be lifted high. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, I think put it well, he said, quote, wholehearted obedience is the sacrifice which God really desires. The sacrifice he received in perfection from his servant son when he came into the world. The psalmist's words, I have come to do your will, O God, sum up the whole tenor 
of the Lord's life and ministry and express the essence of that true sacrifice that God desires. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But first, he showed us that very thing by his example. He denied himself, even though he was God. He took up the cross, and he followed the will of the Father. He led by example. Jesus denied himself. Jesus surrendered his will, not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered his will. He took up his cross, all out of submission for the Father, and all for our sake. <clears throat> the submissive will of Christ. Second thing I want you to see is the, the sanctifying work, the sanctifying work of Christ. Look at verse 10. This is amazing. Verse 10, and by that will, that submitted will to the Father, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now add that with verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What do these passages tell us about the heart of Jesus? And what do they tell us about his heart towards us? Well, well first they, they show us that Jesus is the blueprint of our sanctification. Is the blueprint of our sanctification. In Christ, we are saved, and we are perfected, and we are made holy, as He is holy, in the sight of God, because Christ is our substitute. Right? He, he subbed in for us at the cross. His blood instead of ours. That's what happened at the cross. And He subs in for us before God. But also, not only did He sub in for our death, but He subbed in His life for ours. So we got His holiness, we got His righteousness, we, we got His perfection. Verse 14 says that we're been made perfect, we have been perfected. But it also says, notice this, it says we're still in the process of being sanctified. We are made holy, we are perfected, and yet we are becoming holy. And we're being perfected. Which means we're still in the process of becoming more like Jesus. So we've been declared in Christ to be just like Jesus, and yet we're in the process of still becoming like Jesus. Alright? You with me? You with me? You got smoke coming out of your ear, Jim? <laughs> and so Jesus is the blueprint of what our lives are being built into. That's what God is doing. It's what the Spirit, the Son, and the Father are doing in your life. They are building you to become more like Jesus. Jesus is the blueprint of what you are being built into. God purchased us with His blood, and yet every soul that He purchases, He sees he sees in you a remodeling project. When he looks at you, well, you're we're like houses, right? We're, we're once uh, how, we're houses that were once designed to be glorious temples, and, and yet after the fall, 
right? Sin came and poachers came in and left the place in shambles. That's us. And so, so Jesus, he unrolls the blueprint, which is the original floor plan of what you're supposed to be. And it also happens to look like him. It looks like Jesus. And so he, he looks at the blueprint of Jesus, and then he looks at us. And he goes, oh, i got some work to do. I guess there's a huge gap here. I'm going to have to do some demolition. Right? I'm going to have to remove some things. I'm going to have to remove this sin. I'm going to have to remove that habit. And I'm going to have to rearrange this disordered love. And then I'm going to need to build on to this life. I'm going to need to build on over here. I'm going to need to redesign this. I'm going to add some holiness and some love and some patience and purity to this project. We are God's building project. Verse 14 says we are being sanctified. We are being sanctified. It is something that is being done to us. This building project that is your life is being done to you. You're not the builder. Christ is. Christ has sat down, it says, at the right hand of God because his work of justification is finished, but his work of sanctification has just begun in you. Jesus doesn't simply save us to leave us on our own until we get to heaven. This isn't how this works. He is at work in us from first to last. He who began that good work in you will carry it on to the completion of the day of Christ Jesus. So you're not going to be you're not going to be like this half built house that Jesus says, you know what, I'm done with this. Moving on. Now he, you will be the original design of what you were supposed to be. Salvation is this lifelong process that involves Jesus in every step of the way. It's not that we get saved. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. I'll see you when I die. That's not how it works. It's Jesus, thank you for the salvation. I get to walk with you every single day until I die, and then I get to be with you forever. That's how it works. We never move on from Jesus. We never get past Jesus. He is, he is not just our Savior. He's our life. He is the blueprint of what we are becoming. But not only is the blueprint, he is the builder. Right? Christ is the blueprint and Christ is the builder. And, and that makes sense, right? Because after all, he's a carpenter. But more likely, a little interesting side note. Well, not really. It's kind of right in the text. But this may kind of irritate you. Are you sure Jesus was a carpenter? Not likely, to be honest. In fact, the word carpenter is the word tecton in, in the scripture, in the New Testament, which rarely is referred to as a carpenter. We got the word carpenter because the English translation took the word tecton and translated it into the word carpenter. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense of the, the culture of the time. Tecton is accurately uh, rendered as a craftsman, a builder. 
right? The majority of homes in, in Israel were not made of wood. Uh, the noted Hebraic scholar James Fleming said that, that most of the homes were constructed of stone. He explains this, quote, Jesus and Joseph would have formed and made nine out of ten projects from stone, either by chiseling or carving the stone or stacking building blocks. In other words, Jesus was more likely a stonemason. And he was a builder of houses. And he continues by building you as his house. He is now a builder of lives. That makes so much sense in so many passages of Scripture. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, You also are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes your life, right, and, and he's like chiseling. That's why you go through so many difficult things. So, sometimes it's painful to be chiseled that. And he chisels away at your life anything that doesn't look like him. He's going to chisel away. And then when he's done, you are going to be this, this you're just going to fit perfectly into his, his temple. Uh, you've been made perfect to fit into his spiritual house. Temples of God made holy, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. Well, you know what, kid? I will build my people, and the gates of hell will not rebel against it. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship. The word is craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's craftsmanship. He is chiseling and working and forming us into the image of Christ. He is the builder of our sanctification. Finally, thirdly, he is the booster of our sanctification. I don't really like the word booster, but I couldn't think of another word to, to, with, with B. And so, I, I love the juxtaposition of verse 10 and 14. By the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been made holy once and for all. Right? It's a done deal. You have been made holy in the sight of God. Verse 14 says he has perfected his people for all time. And then he says this, right? Those who are being sanctified. You know, what? So what happens here is God boosts us to do what we can never do on our own, namely to please God. He helps us to become what we already are in Christ. So we are simultaneously a finished product and a work in progress. And the former guarantees that the latter will happen. So when God is at work in us, He is making us more like His Son. Just because God does the sanctifying, by the way, that doesn't mean that we're passive in this project. Right? God requires practical obedience from us. We tend to think that practical holiness nullifies the gospel. It does not. Listen carefully. Been talking a lot years on the gospel. Let us not go so far as to think that that nullifies 
all steps towards obedience and holiness. It does not. Right? We, we have the gospel in order to create us to become more like Christ who is holy. And so it does not nullify grace. It does not contradict justification by faith alone. It does not destroy assurance. It does none of those things because our obedience, check this out, our obedience demonstrates that God is at work in us. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, to will and act on behalf of his good purposes. So it is God who is working in you, and the evidence that he is working in you is that you are acting on behalf of his purposes. You see that? You don't just, God's at work in me, but nothing's happening that I can see. No, you're not passive in this. God looks in, in, in you, he's working in you, and the evidence of that is you want to do his will and you want to act for his purpose. Let me show you what, what that looks like, played out. First Thessalonians, I love this. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now who's doing the work? God, may He sanctify you. By the way, the word sanctify is the process by which we're becoming more like Jesus. That's what it means. Now, may God Himself do that in you completely until you look completely like Jesus. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus when the project is finally finished. And He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's good news, right? God sanctifies us. He keeps us blameless in Christ. He's faithful to the task. Now look at what it says just prior to this. We're just gonna, if we back the text up a little bit. There it is. Verses 16 through 19. Right before he says that God is going to completely do this work. We see this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Who's doing that? We are. And we're called to do that. So how do you go from you hold fast to what is good to Christ is going to hold you fast? It's real simple. The fact that we are doing any of that is the evidence that God is doing it. That God is at work. So for those of you who said, well, God is, you're not wrong. Is it me or is it God? Yes. Is God at work in me? So what Paul is saying is that when we rejoice always, when we pray without ceasing, 
when we give thanks in all circumstances, when we refuse to quench the Holy Spirit, when we abstain from evil, we are showing that is all evidence that God is sanctifying us. He is making us holy. And our desire to be pleasing to God is by being obedient to His work in us. So then the question is, well, then how do I know the difference between me doing those things and being legalistic and God doing those things and to be pleasing to Him? That's a huge question. That is a huge question. Paul is saying that, that God is working, but we're also working with Him. Colossians 1.29 says it like this, For this I toil. This is Paul writing. Who's toiling? Paul. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Who's working there? God. Back and forth. It's a partnership. God will provide you with the energy to do whatever he asks of you. He doesn't expect you to dig down deep Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He will give you the strength to do His will. I want you to notice the source of that strength. We have seen the submissive will of Christ. We have seen, secondly, the sanctifying work of Christ. And lastly, what I want you to see is the spirit witness of Verse 15, this is so amazing. It says, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ bears witness to us. I want you to notice something here, that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And so while the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and, and the Son are not the same person, they are so equally linked and joined together that they're they're considered, you know, one of the, they're almost like synonyms. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, one of the same God. The Holy Spirit does everything as a continuation of the work of the Son. They are inseparable in their purpose. So how does the Spirit of Christ, look at the passage, how does the Spirit of Christ bear witness to us? You can see this. Look at the text. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, verse 16, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31. See what's going on here? The Spirit bears witness to us. How? Through the Scriptures. The Spirit bears witness through the Word of God. When the Spirit speaks to you, He speaks in the language of Bible. That's His language. Scripture. What does the Spirit bear witness to? Well, look at the text. It says that we, verse 16, this is the covenant that will make, I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart and write them on their minds. Basically, that's saying this, that you have the law inside of you. And so the Spirit reminds you of God's law. 
which is why you can't do anything sinful and, and not feel shame by it. Because you know it's wrong. That law is written in you. You know it's wrong. Now that would be awful if that's all that happened. If that's all the Spirit did. But verse 17, then he adds, right, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. How awesome is this? Right? So the, the Spirit, here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit says, you know what? You're a you're, you're sinner. You are a sinner. You have broken the law of God. And the Spirit convicts us. But then the Spirit doesn't say so. Get it together. Get it together. Go to the church and, you know, rededicate your life. And now, it says, here's Jesus. Look at Jesus. In Jesus, all of your sin, all of the disobedience to his law has been removed from you. I will remember it no more. How incredible is that? All of the stuff, all of the baggage that we carry, all of the shame that we carry, we're carrying it around, and God's going, why? I don't, I don't even remember it. Why are you constantly remembering it? Why are you constantly carrying it? When I remove that burden from you, what are you doing? The Spirit bears witness that we have been set free, that He remembers our sins no more. So the first truth that, that keeps us uh, humble is that we're sinners. But the second truth, right, gives us joy. That's what the Spirit does. Humility and joy. And he says, and now there's nothing else for you to do. There's no more sacrifices that need to be made. You just need to live now into your salvation. Philippians 2 says it like this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you see it, work, who's to work out your own salvation? You are. Work out your own salvation. Because it's God working in you. You're able to work it out what God has worked into you. That's what it's saying. And so that's our, our task. And that's the help that Christ gives us. That's his heart for us. That we become like him. And he's done everything. He's taken care of every single step along the way to make sure then we get home. So press on. We, we work out what he has worked in us. Let me just kind of summarize it like this. The role of the Spirit in our sanctification is eternal. It's eternal. The fact that we have already been made holy in Christ that we've already been perfected in Christ means that it can't be undone. And, and what God begins, He finishes. And what He finishes, it lasts forever. 
It's eternal. Secondly, it's internal. It's something that God is working in us. It's something that the Spirit bears witness to within us. It's internal. But thirdly, it's also external. Because what God works in us will result in a way of life working out of us. There will be evidence that people can see. And I look at it every single week and, and I know I know that life is a war. We're all in this thing together, right? We're all in this war. We've been through a lot together. And we've seen uh, people come and go. We've seen people who were part of us for a long time and then in this period we see people that we love foundational parts of our church uh, die and go on home to heaven. And I've seen so many of you walk through your struggles and, and your pain. And Johnny, you're here this morning. And, and you talked about uh, pressing on. And so many of you, I mean, this has been our life together. It's been our life together. And here we are. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get pretty battle-weary. Any of you? But here's the thing, we're not on our own. We're not, it's not, we're not here to do this thing for, for Christ. We're here to let Christ do His thing in us and through us. We're not on our own. Christ has shown us the way. Right? He's doing a work in us. He has shown us the way of what selfless service looks like. Christ has put his self, selfless service life into us. He has put his spirit into us. He is empowering us to power through. That's what he's doing. And he says to us, stay the course. Stay the course. Press on to glory. Press on. It's so worth it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for these, these amazing truths. These amazing, beautiful pictures of Christ. The one who whose submissive will to the Father was just another act of his humble service for our sake. There's so much we could just thank you for. Like we sang, you know, all we have to offer is gratitude. There's so much. And one of the things uh, that often gets overlooked is Christ's willingness to surrender his will to the will of the Father and to be crushed to be an offering for sin. So we thank you, Father, for being loving enough to send your own son. We thank you, Jesus, for surrendering your will to the will of the Father. We thank you for the sanctifying work of Christ in us. We thank you, Father, that, that you have made us holy, that you have already perfected us, and then 
because we don't feel very much like that's true when we look in the mirror. You have given us everything we need to make this building project a reality in our, in our practical daily lives. But sometimes it's painful to get chiseled on. Uh, but your chisel and your hammer are nothing but love. So thank you. And we are grateful, Spirit of Christ, for the work that you continue to do in us. That you fill us, that you work in us, that you empower us, that you lift us up, that you put us on our feet every time we fall down. And we just keep, keep taking another step. Someday we're going to get home. Someday we're all going to stand in amazement. And our, our faith will become sight. And our joy will be full. So Father, whatever we're going through, whatever we're, we're burden we're carrying, Lord, I, I pray help us to just release that. You've not given us burdens to carry when you said that you will carry them for us. You've given us instead a, a Savior and a Lord. And so I pray, Father, help us to, to lay down our burdens and to take up the heart of Christ this morning. Do a work in us, Holy Spirit, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand at your feet if you have any kind of decision uh, you need to make this morning. I'll be down in front.